Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. As always, I am your host, Nico Perino, and today I'm joined by a man who was once dubbed the world's most influential living philosopher by The New Yorker, someone named among the Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in 2005. He is credited with being the father of the animal rights movement and, as a result, surely adored by my dog, Kilroy. He's the uh, author of numerous books and articles, including Animal Liberation and The Life You Can Save. I'm joined, of course, by Princeton University professor Peter Singer. In addition to everything else, he is a founding editor along with Jeff McMahon and Francesca Minerva of a new academic publication called The Journal of Controversial Ideas, fitting perhaps for a man who is known for having some controversial ideas himself, which I'm sure we'll get into during the course of our conversation. Coming to us all the way from Australia, Professor Peter Singer, welcome to So To Speak. Thank you, Nico. It's uh, good to be with you. So let's get right into it. I believe you first mentioned the idea for a Journal of Controversial Ideas in 2017. In 2018, I believe, a plan of action was kind of put into place to create it. And this year, it became a reality and issued its first call for papers. Can you tell me a little bit about the journal and what it hopes to accomplish? Certainly. Uh, The journal was really not my idea specifically. It was uh, originally suggested by Francesca Minerva, who's a philosopher currently in England with an Italian background, uh, who co-authored an article about uh, what she called, what they called post-birth abortion, um, effectively infanticide, for which she got uh, not just criticism, but uh, personal threats, kind of, you know, I know where you live, watch your back when you go home at night kind of threats. Um, And she was very rattled by that. And contacted me about it because she knew that I'd also had uh, threats because of my ideas. Uh, and um, had she had, you know, then I guess we didn't do anything for a while. She also contacted Jeff McMahon, who uh, is now a professor of moral philosophy at Oxford University. And uh, he was sympathetic to the general idea as well. But it was really later uh, events that prompted us to this idea of the Journal of Controversial Ideas. Um, uh, A lot of uh, harassment of particularly young, untenured academics um, and uh, who uh, were harassed and abused and and more than that, who's, uh, you know, where there were petitions for the uh, recalling of papers that had been through peer review and had been published. Yeah, there was the Hypatia incident with Rebecca Tuvel over at Rhodes College in 2017, I believe, in which she published an article about how being transracial or comparing transracialism to being transgender. Uh, And that resulted, I believe, in um, a letter from the editors of Hypatia. And I don't recall the specific facts of it, but I believe uh, calls for the retraction of the article, of course, and maybe even a retraction of the article before they reversed course. I don't remember the specifics, but that was a big controversy at the time. It certainly was, yes. Um, the, the, the essential claim was, or really it was a question, I suppose, that was asked in the paper was, if people can choose their uh, gender, uh, 
uh, and we think that that's fine and they should be protected in being able to choose whatever gender they want, why are we so critical of people who choose their race? Uh, and there was the case of somebody who had uh, been working for the NACP, uh, NAACP and, and had uh, said that they were of African-American descent when in a normal biological sense, they were not. Uh, and she got uh, a lot of abuse for that and was lost her position. So it was really raising that question. Uh, what is it that is supposed to make it fine uh, to choose your gender, but not your not your race? Um, and there was a, the, the, the petition came from a quite substantial number of, of philosophers, um, several hundred. Uh, for the retraction of the paper. The editor actually stood firm and did not retract the paper. So oh, that was good. encouraging. But um, all the same, it was, again, uh, uh, an, an, a, a young, untenured academic. Uh, uh, and we, we could see that this could be intimidating for people to put forward controversial ideas. And so for that reason, we developed the idea of a journal that would enable people to publish uh, anonymously or under a pseudonym, even though it was an, an academic journal, even though it was a journal that would be peer-reviewed in the normal way of academic journals and would require high academic standards. Uh, and the thought was that this would enable people to publish controversial ideas that they might not otherwise have dared to publish. Um, if they later wanted to come forward as the author, we would have a mechanism whereby they could be identified and, and we as the editors could verify that that was the author uh, if they wanted to add it to their CV, if they were applying for jobs or something like that. Um, but uh, it was seen as a way of preventing the restriction of freedom of speech, which otherwise could occur by this kind of attack on people, again, particularly younger, non-tenured academics, uh, who might have controversial ideas that would be uh, well worth hearing, that, that might be really sound, you know, well argued and the kinds of things that ought to be out there in uh, a free arena of discussion. So the obvious question here is, will any idea be off the table? I mean, is there any idea too controversial for the Journal of Controversial Ideas? Eugenics, a pro-slavery or pro-colonialism paper is nothing off limits in this journal if it's well argued. Nothing is off limits if it is sufficiently well argued to pass peer review. Some of those ideas that you just mentioned, uh, depending, of course, on exactly how we understand them, um, uh, how we understand the terms used, um, might be very difficult, perhaps impossible, to find uh, solid arguments that would pass uh, rigorous scrutiny and peer review. But um, uh, they're not off the table because of the particular area of controversy that they're in, no. So controversy, the Journal of Controversial Ideas, presumably every article that makes its way into the journal will be controversial in some way. But in controversy some, is- In some way, that's right. Yeah, um, and that's why I ask, controversy is subjective. For example, what's controversial in China might not be controversial in America. Sometimes controversy is engendered by the context even. For example, who is making the argument rather than the argument itself. So Peter Singer arguing for animal rights, probably not a controversial article today, but Peter Singer arguing against animal rights probably will create some controversy. Would that be in the journal? Uh, 
I, I suppose, not that you're going to write that, but the idea behind it, you know, the person. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, 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 we, we had not really thought about ideas that were controversial simply because of the, the author. Um, but we certainly had thought about ideas that were controversial in the uh, cultural and political context in which the author is writing. Uh, so we think that the fact that you can publish uh, anonymously could be something that is valuable for exactly as you say, academics in China perhaps, or for that matter in Iran. Um, so yeah, we, we would welcome those, those articles if they, if they would obviously have to say something that wasn't, you know, entirely obvious to, to most readers. So, um, they wouldn't just be saying, well, it would be good if China were more democratic. Um, that's not controversial enough. They would have to be saying something a little more specific about the Chinese situation or, or similarly, you know, if they said, look, uh, theocracies are not a great idea, and so it would be better if Iran were not a theocracy. Uh, it would have to it would have to do something more than that. Gotcha. Pseudonymity, uh, pseudonymity. Excuse me, I can't get that word out. Okay. Versus anonymity. Are you allowed to publish, or are you guys planning to publish uh, both type uh, types of writers? People who choose anonymity versus pseudonymity. Not exactly, no. We will, I think, assign a pseudonym to somebody who doesn't actually have a pseudonym that they want to use because we think it'll be uh, important to be able to refer to the author in some way. I suppose you could always do as, you know, uh, what we do with uh, Italian paintings or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. the the master of the paintings of the chapel of Um, so-and-so. You could always do the the author of the article and give the title of the article. but it's a bit cumbersome. So uh, our plan is to assign a pseudonym. Well, the reason I ask that is because anonymity makes it clear to the reader that the identity is being hidden. Uh, you know, oh, the sorry, the pseudonym will as well. We, we will, we oh, will okay. state that this is a pseudonym. Yeah. I asked that because in 2018, of course, we had the grievance studies hoax, which, you know, rested upon uh, a pseudonym. Uh, for these writers, I'm not even gonna try and say pseudonymity. But you know, and and there's a lot of people who are kind of you know, you know that 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 was a big hit against a lot of these journals. Was that was the grievance study hoax sitting in the back of your mind when you were coming up with this idea? I mean, presumably, if the arguments were good enough from these people writing uh, the grievance studies articles, uh, they should have remained in the publications, right? I mean. They were accepted. Some of them were peer reviewed, not all of them. Uh, so it shouldn't have mattered if the person writing them. Well, I guess it probably does matter if they're being truthful about who they are or not. But the the argument should stand on its own. Yes, that's an interesting point, um, really. And and that would have been a, a a defense that could have been made of the journals that were, oh well, these people were writing under a, you know they intended to hoax us, but actually they wrote a brilliant article. Um, that could have been said. That was, you know, there, there was a famous poetry hoax here in Australia called the Erno O'Malley hoax uh, a long time ago, where somebody wrote nonsense poems and they got published in a leading poetry journal, and and that was the defence that the editor made. Well, you know, this person writing in just somehow happened to write great poetry, or, or anyway, acceptably good poetry, um, even even though that wasn't their intention. Um, so yeah. Uh, that could be that that could be the case, but uh, as I say, we we're not interested in in hoaxing our readers. We're interested in getting ideas out there, and uh, if 
if something is published under a pseudonym, we will let readers know that this is not the author's real name. Now, one criticism I've read is that the journal will, quote, reinforce expertise undermining misconceptions about academia, close quote. The idea being, I think, that the mere existence of this journal, the context in which it's created and the arguments for its need kind of represent a critique of the academy and could therefore compromise support for it at a precarious time when expertise is perceived to be undermined. I, I want to get your sense of what you make of that argument. I think, uh, I forget the exact article I read that critique in. It might have been Inside Higher Ed or the Chronicle or Higher Education. Well, it's an academic journal. So, um, you know, yes, it's a response to some tendencies that we've noticed in academia, but it's a way of saying uh, the, the standards, the academic standards of, of rigorous peer review and the publication of controversial uh, ideas or of ideas based on their, on their merit uh, is something that uh, academic, academia can continue to do, that it's not being repressed by the climate uh, of hostility to certain ideas. Um, and you know, if, you, if you're saying, well, the existence of the journal shows that there is this climate of hostility to certain ideas, that seems to me to be just undeniable. Um, you know, it's it's the people who, let's say, signed that letter to Hypatia about Rebecca Tuval's article who should have been concerned about what is is this going to provide uh, a stick for people to beat academics with and to say, look, there's this intolerance in academia. Um, uh, it's critics who who take that kind of action. I think um, are providing that stick, but. The journal is a response to that, and since that exists, um, I think having the journal responding in this way shows the resilience of academia and the fact that the values and standards can be protected from what I hope will just be a temporary phenomenon in which there's a climate of hostility that makes it difficult to present certain ideas. So speaking of values and standards, I want to get to another critique. from one person said that you question how you will find willing and qualified reviewers and referees if you're publishing from myriad disciplines. Uh, you know, how do you ensure a robust review uh, when you're really casting a wide net for submissions here? That is a, a, a problem for us. There's no question. Uh, we have quite a, a, a large editorial board, over 40 people um, from a wide variety of disciplines. Um, People want to look at uh, who they are. They can, they can go to the website of the Journal of Controversial Ideas.org. Uh, um, but we will need to call on some reviewers for particular articles outside that editorial board. Uh, and we have already started doing that. Um, you know, we're, we're not completely uh, non disciplinary. If somebody sends us something in, in physics and says, this is a controversial idea among physicists, but it's only intelligible to physicists and would require expert <laughs> physicists to review it. Uh, no, that's not what we're looking for. Um, we are looking for controversial ideas with social significance, I suppose you could say, with uh, potential to lead to changes in the way we do things. So you said, uh, or at least suggested in your answer, that you've started to get papers. Uh, have you got? Yes, we have. Yeah, a, we, we issued a significant number. Um. I think it might be around 30 submissions that we've had so far. I'm not sure if that's... Which is pretty good when you're the one that has to wade through them, right? Find the time to wade through them. Yes, uh, that's right. Yeah, well, the three of us, um, you know, are starting, but um, uh, we have 
started doing that. Um, I should say not all of them are of a quality that uh, goes out to peer review um, as any journal receives. There are some, some, are, some that you just look at and clearly they're not of academic standard. They're not going to make it. So they're rejected prior to peer review. I think maybe a th roughly a third of the papers we received might be like that, but we've already got plenty of papers out for peer review and some of those reviews are starting to come in. And one notable thing about your journal is that it's going to be open access, which means that anyone will be able to access the publication. You don't need to belong to a college or university, for example, that gives you uh, library permissions to access uh, these articles, correct? Yes, that is correct. You don't need to uh, have a subscription. You don't need to pay for individual articles. It is all open access. Um, that does, of course, provide another uh, question, and that is, is how is this funded? Because you have to pay for open access. Um, we have found a publisher who is charging, we think, reasonable sorts of fees for uh, putting the article up online. Uh, but we are calling for donations from the general public to support this enterprise. And I, any of your listeners who think that what we're doing is a valuable thing to promote free speech, I encourage them to go to our website, the Journal of Controversial Ideas, and have a look at what we're doing. And if you still like it, then there's a place there where you can go to make a donation to support us. And I should note, it's tax deductible here in the United States. I don't know the tax laws in other countries, but it is tax deductible, at least as far as I saw here in the United States. It is. That's correct. Yes. We, what we've done is we've set up a foundation. It's called the Foundation for Freedom of Thought and Discussion. And any fans of John Stuart Mill's essay on liberty will recognize where that phrase comes from. Um, and uh, that is a charitable foundation uh, recognized by the Internal Revenue Service of the United States as a 501c3 charity. So uh, donations are tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers. So I want to broaden the scope here. A uh, lot of conversation right now about cancel culture, uh, particularly in the United States, but across the world. Wanted to get your just general sense. What do you make of it? I mean, clearly you have a concern about it in higher ed or concern about something like it in higher education. Otherwise, you wouldn't be as concerned as you seem about Rebecca Tuvel. I'm concerned about cancel culture insofar as it intimidates people from uh, expressing their ideas freely. Uh, and I'm also concerned about it for, I just mentioned John Stuart Mill, for basically million ideas about having a robust uh, discourse, which is important not only because our, some of our ideas might be wrong and need to be challenged because they're wrong, but also uh, as Mill pointed out, because without a, without allowing criticism, we cease to understand the basis of our ideas. Uh, they become dead dogmas rather than living truths. And I think it's important to see what the evidence is, you know, why they can be, why why these views can be defended against challenges, rather than simply to prohibit people from even challenging them. So I need to ask, because you are a professor at Princeton, about uh, what happened with classics professor Joshua Katz at Princeton. He critiqued in uh, a publication based out of Australia, actually, called Quillette. Uh, he critiqued a list of demands uh, that was sent to the Princeton administration. And uh, in kind of 
talking about those demands, used the phrase terrorist organization to describe a now-defunct student group called Black Justice League. He was, uh, as a result, immediately denounced on social media. And, and uh, as he writes in a Wall Street Journal op-ed, he was publicly um, denounced by his department, the Classics Department, and by the university president. And at the same time, a spokesperson for the university said they were looking into the matter. Uh, the note that was published on the Classics Department's website has been taken down, and the the, the president of the university has subsequently uh, come out in support of uh, Professor Katz's free speech and academic freedom rights. But this was quite the controversy there for a couple of weeks, and it was unclear whether the university was investigating the professor. And the suggestion from the spokesperson for the university was was quite chilling. So I wanted to get your take, if you're willing to provide it, on kind of what happened there and if you have any insights into what was happening behind the scenes. I, I don't have any insights into what was happening uh, behind the scenes. So I can't just can't help you there. I was not privy to any of those conversations in any way. Uh, so, but my, my take on the overall situation is that um, it's consistent with uh, support for freedom of speech and expression, because of course that must extend to people denouncing ideas that they regard as mistaken. Uh, and um, I think what's important is that we do not actually deny people the freedom to say those things. And I think that's what, uh, uh, president Eisgruber, uh, the president of Princeton, has has said that uh, Princeton does support uh, freedom of speech. At the same time, um, it wants to respect all members of the university community. It supports that. Um, but I, as I understand it, there is no suggestion of sanctions against Professor Katz for uh, what he said. Um, and I, I. I would be much more concerned if, if there were to be some sanctions for him. I think that would be inconsistent with the university's commitment to freedom of speech. And let me say, while we're talking about freedom of speech at Princeton, that when I came to Princeton in 19, uh, 1999, um, my appointment was controversial. Uh, it was in particular because of my ideas about uh, abortion and uh, euthanasia for uh, severely disabled newborn infants. Um, and it was denounced by Steve Forbes, who was uh, both a trustee of Princeton University and who's there's a Forbes College at Princeton that was endowed by his father, um, but also at the time uh, a candidate for the Republican nomination for president, the uh, nomination that was eventually won by George W. Bush. Um, and I think, you know, to some extent, uh, his uh, he, he called for my uh, appointment to be rescinded. This was before I'd taken it up. Um, but uh, President uh, Harold Shapiro, who's then president, uh, stood very firmly for academic freedom and said that the appointment was made on academic merit and was properly reviewed and so on, as it was. Um, and uh, the, the rest of the board of trustees, uh, with the exception of, of Forbes, um, stood firmly behind it and made a statement about um, freedom of freedom of expression. So I think Princeton, uh, certainly then, 20 years ago, was strongly in support of freedom of expression. I believe that President Eisgruber is himself a personal advocate of freedom of expression. Uh, and I very much hope that the university will continue to be like that. There have been a lot of uh, developments in the probably the past decade. Uh, 
surrounding student expression, uh, academic freedom in the academy, the rise of the language of microaggressions, trigger warnings, and you've also seen, or at least we've seen, increasing hecklers' vetoes, the attempts to to shout down speakers on campus who are perceived uh, to be offensive in one way or another. I wanted to ask, given your your history uh, as a controversial uh, figure, or I should say controversial thinker, you uh, you present controversial ideas. Is this something new in your opinion, or is this have you seen have you been shouted down before, I guess, before the past decade? Have you seen increasing calls uh, for you to uh, not speak on campus, or have those um, kind of been present throughout your career? Well, things have changed a little. Um, I have been shouted down, um, uh, or actually whistled down, I could say, should say, by audiences that uh, had a subsection of the audience who didn't want to hear me speak and who brought uh, whistles and noisemakers of various kinds um, so that it was impossible for me to be heard. But um, until uh, um, the last decade, these protests had entirely been in German-speaking countries. Um, where Why is that? My, yeah. yeah my, the, uh, there's a clear explanation for that. These were started in 1989 and they went uh, into the uh, 1990s. Um, and uh, this was because the term euthanasia was used by the Nazis um, for the murder of what they called useless mouths um, or a blot on the Aryan folk. Um, there's people with uh, disabilities, with um, genetic inherited disabilities, uh, who might have been enjoying their lives and whose parents may have loved them and wanted them to go on living, um, but the Nazis murdered them. Um, no question uh, about that. And they called that a euthanasia program. It was not euthanasia in the, because it was not for the benefit either of the uh, p- people themselves or of their families or anything like that. It was a state-ordered attempt to retain the purity of the Aryan race. Um, but because I, you know, I've used the term euthanasia, um, and, and my view, I let should for listeners who are not familiar with it, is that this should be an option available to parents when they judge that their child has such a serious disability that the child's life will be miserable for the child or will be such a burden on the family that it will um, be uh, something that is detrimental for the family as a whole. Um, so uh, so it's I'm not at all suggesting that the state should make these decisions. I'm suggesting that parents should make these decisions uh, with, in consultation with their doctors. Um, but, but just the use of the term euthanasia led people to think that uh, this had some sort of Nazi ramifications. And I think the guilt of uh, those people about what their parents had done, so we're talking about, say, 1990, so people there who were born in perhaps uh, 1970, uh, whose parents were had been through the Nazi period, um, and uh, who knows what some of them had done. Um, and I think they, they felt uh, the need to do something to express that um, and one way of doing that was to resist any form of neo-nazism which of course I can understand um, and I should say I'm of Jewish background and three of my four grandparents were murdered by the Nazis in the Holocaust um, but they didn't know very much about me they didn't know very much about my ideas um, and I think a lot of that opposition was misinformed 
maybe not all of it, you know, I can be some people who certainly ha can have grounds for objecting to my ideas without confusing them with what the Nazis did. But I think you know, that was a significant part of it. Um, so that happened to me when I went to Germany, to Austria, and to the German-speaking part of Switzerland uh, on a number of occasions uh, in the from 1989 and early 1990s. Some events got cancelled. Some events that were not cancelled, um, it was impossible for me to be heard. On one occasion, somebody jumped up out of the audience, took my glasses off my face. I'm quite seriously short-sighted, uh, and smashed them under his shoe. Um, so you know, it did it reached that level of, of assault? Uh, but um, you know, that died down in Germany, and I've been speaking in Germany on many occasions since. Um, they've sometimes there've been people protesting, exercising their free speech rights to hand out leaflets or hold placards or, against my views. Um, but I haven't been stopped from speaking. But what has happened uh, just fairly recently, on a couple of occasions, and it's still very rare in the English-speaking world, um, is uh, that there has been some opposition to my uh, speaking. Um, uh, I spoke recently online at Cambridge University and the Cambridge University Union, and there was a student resolution from a different student organization that I shouldn't be allowed to speak because of my views about disability. Uh, and um, I also spoke online, uh, even before this was before the COVID-19 crisis um, at uh, Victoria University in British Columbia. And um, so a group of students came in with a megaphone and basically made a lot of noise and tried to drown me out. Um, so there have been a couple of rather minor incidents, I would say, in uh, the last uh, decade in English-speaking countries, which which was new because, as I say, the previous attempts to stop me speaking had not had been limited to German-speaking countries uh, entirely, uh, and other places that again there'd been protesters occasionally and so on, um, but that's fine. Uh, so yeah, I've, I have been shouted down, but I haven't um, had very much of that outside the German-speaking countries. What about corporate pressure brought to bear? From outside the university, animal liberation, uh, your work, you know, discussing factory farming. Uh, there are large vested interests in the continuation of factory farming. So I imagine there are, might be some industry interests uh, that have become involved over the course of your career, or is, have you not seen that? I've not seen that in the sense of trying to um, get me fired from a university or prevent me from taking up an appointment at a university. Um, I think. There was, I, I, when I was appointed to Princeton in, in 1999, there was some concern from scientists uh, using animals in uh, experiments that I would stir up opposition to what they were doing. And I, I don't think it had any impact. Well, obviously it didn't have any impact on, on the appointment procedure. I don't, I don't know that it ever looked like it was going to have any impact, and I'm, but there was some expression of concern. Um, and certainly, you know, Farming groups have criticized what I've said and attacked me in, in various ways. But no, I can't remember any occasions where they've tried to put pressure on the university in a way that would silence me. So a lot of what we talk about in academia is our, our norms. I mean, of course, in the United States, we have the First Amendment that at public universities uh, protects uh, a lot of aspects of what we might consider academic freedom. But uh, you're a professor at Princeton. 
Uh, Princeton is a private university that can create its own values, and it has uh, has has articulated strong values in support of freedom of expression and academic freedom over the years. I believe the faculty has adopted what's been called the Chicago Statement uh, on Free Expression. The uh, university, President Eisgruber, has assigned uh, Keith Whittington's book as a, a freshman read or a summer read one year, which, and his book is about freedom of expression on college campuses, and Keith Whittington is in what I would consider and what Fire would consider a very good advocate for those values. So I, you know, I ask kind of in the spirit of, of thinking about norms, what you consider an appropriate response to controversial, offensive, or wrongheaded ideas within the academic con- context. I mean, you know, let's say you think something is abhorrent or offensive. Is, you know, is there a level at which the response can begin to chill, um, chill a faculty member's research? Um, or is any level uh, or any vehemence in the response uh, appropriate short of calls for punitive action? Um, so I think any, I, I, I think the appropriate response is to show why the ideas are wrong, why they're mistaken. Um, uh, and you know, that may be producing evidence that they're mistaken. It may be producing counter arguments and objections to show why the reasoning is flawed. This is what philosophers and academics do all the time. So uh, that seems to me the best way to do it. Um, in terms of uh, vehemence, I think anything that um, seems likely to incite uh, an uh, aggression rather than a reasoned response is undesirable. Um, and certainly suggestions of punitive um, action in the sense of trying to get somebody fired um, is, I think, quite the wrong response. Uh, trying to get you know, ideas prohibited is, is also the wrong response. Um, I should say that I'm talking here about ideas and attempts to present ideas and argue for ideas and show that they're plausible. I'm not talking about what's sometimes referred to as vilification, say in, in laws here in Australia, we have laws against racial vilification. Um, and I understand the distinction as vilification is simply an appeal to the emotions to stir up hatred against a particular group. Um, uh, and in a sense, there's no responding to vilification because it doesn't make factual claims that which evidence is relevant. Um, it's not in that in that business. So uh, I think it's appropriate to have laws that stop racial vilification or vilification on grounds of sexual orientation or something of that sort. Um, but uh, that's quite distinct from presenting ideas and arguments in a way that appeals to our capacity to, to think and to reason and reflect on whether those ideas are True or false? In Australia, and I'm just curious um, about those laws. Are those laws ever misused, or do you ever see them misused by the government to uh, go after uh, political or ideological minorities? Um, we've seen in other countries with respect to their hate speech laws that they're wielded, for example, to punish uh, pro-Palestinian uh, advocates for their criticism of, of Israel or. Black Lives Matter activists um, or racial justice activists for their criticism of um, their opponents as well, because sometimes it's done on the basis of the color of their skin, their race, 
uh, et cetera. So I'm just curious how, how that's played out in Australia and understanding of course, that Australian culture is, is, is probably in, in some, uh, smaller or significant ways different than American culture. Yeah, it, it, it is different. Um, so I wouldn't say that our laws have been, uh, abused, um, by the sort of government or dominant political forces, uh, against minorities or their opponents. Um, but there's certainly, there are borderline cases as to how the law should be applied. Um, and there are, there have been a couple of questionable, um, hearings. So there was one into a, uh, a controversial right-wing radio host who made some remarks about indigenous people. Um, which uh, were regarded as, well, well, which there was an attempt to, to suggest that they were vilification and that um, I, I think to get damages awarded to members of the community that he'd attacked. Um, and I thought that that was a little bit borderline, really, because in a way he was making factual claims about uh, the behaviour of certain people in, in the community. Uh, and the basis of the of the hearing was not that these claims were factually false, but that they were offensive to the community or that they would tend to stir up hatred. And so I think there are, there are real questions about whether these laws are being used only against vilification or also to clamp down on people saying things that members of disadvantaged minorities find offensive. Uh, but in, in fact, you know, that, hearing, although the hearing was certainly uncomfortable, I, I, I don't think it led to any substantial silencing of the uh, radio host. Um, and I don't think it, so I don't think it really did uh, a great amount of damage to freedom of expression in Australia. The diversity of editors for the, the Journal of Controversial Ideas, you know, uh, I don't, I don't think any of the editors, correct me if I'm wrong, are uh, from the United States. Uh, you're obviously have an appointment at Princeton. But does that mean that the, and I, I'm here in the United States, so my focus tends to be here. Does that mean some of the phenomena that we've been seeing in the United States uh, relating to challenges to academic freedom or free speech or cancel culture writ large have, are, exist elsewhere, exist in the UK, uh, exist in Australia? And if so, uh, are they at similar degrees to what we see here? Uh, well, first of all, let me say that Jeff McMahon is an American. Um, and Oh, okay. Taught for many years um, at uh, in the United States, and uh, he was at at Rutgers for, in New Jersey for many years, and just took up this appointment as professor of moral philosophy at uh, Oxford University. Uh, I don't remember exactly, maybe eight or ten years ago, something like that. Um, so shame on me for presuming that if he's teaching over there, that he's that he's from. That's right. Just as I'm an Australian <laughs> at Princeton, he's an American at Oxford. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I, no, I don't think you can draw particular assumptions. Certainly, the the, the phenomenon that we're talking about uh, exists in many different countries now. Um, uh, in, I suppose, particularly in countries with a Western culture. That um, obviously, it's a very different phenomenon that exists as we're talking about in places like China or, or Iran or um, uh, elsewhere. Uh, but uh, it, there are variations between between different countries um, in terms of how we regard freedom of expression. But I think the the basic ideas are still 
of, of freedom of thought and freedom of expression and what its limits are, uh, are ones that are uh, broadly similar in different, different countries. Uh, perhaps, um, you know, the First Amendment does make a difference in the United States, I suppose, uh, and that has enabled some sort of ideas that maybe would, would not get by uh, vilification laws in a number of other countries. But that's really very much on the fringes. That's not really the uh, kind of closing of academic life to, to certain ideas that is more of a concern um, to uh, a, a number of people. You know, I do think I do think the First Amendment makes a difference, but I also think it hurts us in some ways because uh, for many Americans, when we're defending the ideas behind freedom of expression, we make a circular argument. Well, it's good because the First Amendment protects it. Uh, it it we kind of rest on that right uh, and not the principles that undergird the right. We don't go back to the million arguments uh, for for freedom of expression that perhaps, and in my opinion, are more compelling than saying, well, the founding fathers said the you know freedom of the speech is important, therefore it's important. And that's not something that you always see in, in other countries because they do not have the First Amendment to fall back on. By way of closing, I, I, I want to ask what's going to happen moving forward. So uh, as you know, you and I were emailing uh, Back and forth, every couple of months, I'd check in to see the status of the Journal of Controversial Ideas. What is the status now? You've issued a call for papers. Do you know when you will publish your first issue, or will that only happen once you have a sufficient number of articles that you think are worthy of publication? Yes, we'll need to have uh, a number of articles that have been through the peer review process and have been accepted. Um, We're getting... Well, we're getting close, I would say, to uh, to accepting our first article. Um, we've certainly we've had one article that has had only positive uh, reviews. Um, uh, there were some suggestions for minor revisions, um, but that may soon be accepted. Um, and we have some others where you know the referees are a bit divided, or the referees want more substantial revisions, so they will go back to the authors and maybe take more time to get accepted if they do get accepted in the end. So we're certainly not there yet. Um, it's a little hard to say when we will be. If I had to make an estimate, I'd say perhaps three months. So um, I would certainly hope that we will be publishing uh, first articles this year in 2020. Um, but that's, that's as much as I can say at this stage. Well, I can say your supporters, uh, like your critics, are probably anxiously awaiting that first issue. And uh, you only get one shot at a first impression. Uh, and I think your your critics probably recognize that as well. So you got to make sure that those articles that you get in that first issue are, are quite good. Uh, I think I'm going to leave it there, uh, Professor Singer. Uh, I, I said 45 minutes. We're at about 44 and a half minutes right now. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Good. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to your audience. That was Princeton professor Peter Singer. The project is called the Journal of Controversial Ideas. You can learn more about the project at journalofcontroversialideas.org, where you can also support the project with a tax-deductible donation. To learn more about Professor Singer's broader work, you can visit petersinger.info. 
This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. We also take feedback at so to speak at thefire.org, and you can call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. They do help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, as always, thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.